John chapter 3, and Lord willing, we'll be in verses 1 through 8 of John 3. John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Lord, there's so many things that are in your word that are to our natural mind and our natural way of thinking difficult to understand and in fact not just hard to believe but impossible to believe and that's why we need you to cause us to believe to give us this faith to help us to understand these things. Here we see, Lord, a man who was probably one of the wisest men of his day. And Jesus, in just a few short phrases, absolutely stumbles him and befuddles him and brings him to the point where he can only think of absurdities. And if that's true for such a smart man as Nicodemus, Lord, then... It's equally true for us, and so we pray that you would give us insight and understanding into the truths that you have for us here in your word. We thank you for the amazing gift of salvation that we have from you, that you have caused us to be born again and not we ourselves, Lord. And so, Lord, we lean hard and we lean back upon that salvation you've given to us, even to come before you and pray this very prayer right now. So lead and guide us all out of a heart of gratitude we come to you and ask you these things to give you all the praise and glory and honor that's due your name, Lord. Thank you for loving us and saving us. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, being born again has many connotations. In the past, it's been something that has been 
affirmed by certain presidents. Jimmy Carter was one of the first ones to call himself a born-again Christian. Both of the Bushes called themselves born-again Christians. There's some um, cultural uh, cachet that comes with being born again, even still today, as we're secularizing as a culture, there is still in many circles within our country that the idea of being born again is seen as a good thing, seen as favorable, seen as something that you want in a person. And there's people who want their businesses to be founded and run on a Christian framework and want people who are genuine, true believers to offer them services and to be giving them the things that they desire because they're trustworthy as individuals. That hasn't always been the case. And in fact, this phrase being born again is not something that has always existed in the page in the history of Scripture. It's something that when we come to a text like this, this is where we first find this concept being flushed out for us, the idea of being born again. And even though, you know, I had, when I first became a Christian, a patch on my backpack that said born again and had a little rainbow and had a little butterfly fluttering, you know, and a cute kind of thing like that. And we understand what that is. Nicodemus did not. And this is a fella who was um, no small individual. And I don't mean small like Zacchaeus, the wee little man, who climbed up in the tree. Not like that. He was no small man in the terms that he was a leader in Israel. Now, last week I talked a little bit about Passover and I made the um, kind of connection, compared Passover with our two holidays of 4th of July and Christmas to try to help understand how important that holiday was to the Jews of that day and age. Well, this man, he would have served the role of a both priest and politician in the nation. A leader of the Jews was not just simply somebody who was political in nature, but he was also somebody who was a spiritual leader as well. Now, he was a Pharisee, it says here. Pharisees, if you don't know, they, they rose in between the Testaments. There's about 400 silent years in between the last penning of the words of Malachi in chapter 4 there and the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. And during that time, it was not a silent part of history, but much happened specifically in the area of Judea or Israel. There was many empires that came and went. There was evil rulers and there was decent rulers But during that time, um, more along the lines of a little more than halfway through that time, this group of Pharisees rose. And they were, for all intents and purposes, similar to Puritans. They were a back-to-the-Bible kind of people. This was a reformation for Judaism in that day. They had experienced the exile and then from the return after the exile, one of the things that they strictly eschewed was idolatry, at least in the forms of actually propping up statues and falling down and worshiping. 
<clears throat> However, like Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. And he's quite right. So even though there weren't established statues set up, there were still many things that were idols in the heart and in the minds of the people of Israel. And the Pharisees arose to kind of challenge those sinful tendencies within the people. And so they rose up as actually a pretty decent movement, a a righteousness movement, a, a movement of people who wanted to see righteousness reign and God's laws followed and be established in the land. But as many traditions do and as many movements do over the years, the influence, the um, foundations either get buried or lost to history or simply assumed. And when you begin to assume those foundations, error is inevitable. Many people said that, you know, a church is one generation away from failure, and what we need to do to fail is to assume the gospel. Meaning we don't talk about it, we don't preach about it, we don't bring it up, we just assume it. Oh, we're saved. Let's move on past that onto other things, and don't go back and talk about the gospel. And if you do that, you're going to go into error because you're going to leave the very thing that should be that life-giving, the thing that you thirst most for your soul, the thing Jesus says is the very food we need, the bread of life in order to live. We can't ever assume the gospel. And like that, the Pharisees got to a point, I think, where they assumed certain truths that established that movement. And so rather than looking to God and his sovereignty and his glory on displayed in his laws being followed, they soon fell into a legalistic rut where rules were obeyed out of a sense of duty and obligation rather than gratitude and love for the Lord their God. And this is exemplified in Matthew chapter twenty. Three, when Jesus just lambasts the scribes and the Pharisees <clears throat> to the point of calling them whitewashed tombs. They look really good on the outside, very clean, pristine, but on the inside they're full of dead bones. Well, Nicodemus is a Pharisee in the group of people who are alive in that whitewashed tomb kind of generation. Most of the Pharisees fall into that category. Nicodemus is an odd individual, though. He's an individual that is somewhat compelled by what Jesus is saying and doing. In John chapter 19, and some of you might know this, but he appears again. John chapter 19, it's after the burial of Jesus. It says in verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took took away his body. Nicodemus, also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices 
as the burial custom is of the Jews. Now, we'll stop right there just to point out that Nicodemus was more, at least the end of the story, a follower of Jesus than he certainly was at the beginning of the story. It's interesting that when we come to this passage and we talk about the need for new spiritual birth, and he's speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is the one raising these silly questions like, how can this possibly be? And yet it certainly seems like he actually became one of the few individuals who actually was born again. Church history tells us that he went into northern Galilee and planted churches there and ministered there till the very end of his days. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But that's who this guy is. He's a Pharisee. He loves the law. He loves God's word. His job is to study the Bible and to talk about the things he studied in the Bible and to write about things that he studied from the Bible. So his sole job as a leader of the Jews is to lead people into the spiritual truths that are found in God's word. Now, we know that many of the Pharisees did that out of a sense of um, power and enriching of themselves. This guy doesn't seem to fall into that particular category. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Now, it says here he came by night, and it also said that in John chapter 19. There's probably a reason for that. Remember what we looked at last week. Last week, Jesus went on to the Temple Mount and there in the court of the Gentiles, the place that was set aside for all of the people who were not Jews by nationality to come and worship the true and living God. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had set up these money booths and exchanging of animal booths and they were making money off of the worship of God. And that didn't go over well with these guys. They got very upset and they came to him and said, what in the world are you doing? What gives you the right? What gives you the authority? And of course then he went and talked about his resurrection being the sign and the authority by which he was doing what he was doing. And so they were not fans of Jesus at that point. But here we find one of these guys who undoubtedly was there during all of that and had seen some of the other signs that Jesus was doing. I mean, just at the very end of John 2, it says, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus by night. So probably out of this desire to truly hear from Jesus and at the same time to hide his intentions. He came to Jesus by night, probably out of some sense of shame and a desire to not be seen uh, consorting with the enemy, if you will, colluding with the enemy. But his curiosity got the best of him. And I can't help but wonder if the reason Jesus brings up this whole being born again issue to Nicodemus here at this time 
is because that's what was going on in Nicodemus. The Spirit was drawing him. The Spirit was already bringing him. The Spirit was, if we want to use the word, wooing him, if you will. The wind was blowing. And the wind was blowing in the heart and in the life, in the spirit of Nicodemus. Here at this particular point in time, he was probably not saved just yet. That was still a little bit down the road. But it's certainly evident that I think that's what's taking place here, is that the Lord is doing this work in him. Now, this is a passage that is known so well. But it's not always known so rightly. And so I would like to go slow through John 3. And if we don't make it all the way to verse 8, I'm actually okay with that. We might make it to verse 8. But we're going to go through it slowly. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to allow John 3 to become for us a place where we have a couple of Holy Ghost daggers that we pull out from time to time, right? And they're completely out of context, but we just wing them out and throw them out like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish and have everlasting life, right? And of course, you all know that passage and You emphasize certain words in order to make it say something that you want it to say. But what I hope we can do is rather than allowing texts like John 3.16 to be those out of context just darts that we shoot, that we go through and we see there's an argument that's actually being built by Jesus. There's a point that he's making and John 3.16 is not the ultimate end of the point. It's a part of him still building his case. And so what we don't want to do is we don't want to just pull verses out of context and use them and fling them out there. We want to make sure that we rightly understand what it is that's being said and use it rightly and use it appropriately. Or else I'm just going to say it. We run the risk of becoming Pharisees ourselves. Where we take certain things and we hold on to certain truths and we assume the rest of it and we we don't look up the foundations and we end up believing wrongly even though we're the people who are supposed to be doing things rightly which is where the pharisees ended up they started out well but because they took things probably out of context. They took things and added tradition to it. They took things and expanded upon it. And before you know it, they have this big, huge, absolute, just maniacal structure that Jesus, of course, toppled over when he kicked out the money changers there on the Temple Mount. So, plenty of introduction there. Jesus, Nicodemus, have this intense conversation here in the middle of the night and he begins Nicodemus does by saying a good thing confessing we know you are a teacher come from God well that's not what everybody knew most of them didn't know that in fact most of them wouldn't have confessed that truth this is one of the reasons why Perhaps I think that the Spirit is blowing here and doing this work. He goes on to say, For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, that's a good place to be. 
There are lying signs and wonders. The book of 2 Thessalonians tells us in chapter 2 that when the eventual Antichrist comes and rises, that he will do many lying signs and wonders, and if possible, will even deceive the elect. But of course, that's not possible. But the point is, is that there will be so amazing in what they do. The book of Revelation seems to indicate that there are going to be false teachers and false prophets that do some very interesting, miraculous kind of things. And by miraculous, I don't mean positive miracles. I mean something supernatural that's taken place. And the Lord, for his plans and purposes, is going to allow people to do some stuff. And you know what? There there are all over the place in the world where because people are loving their sin and following their false ways of worship, that God will allow demonic activity to take place even today and do all manner of spooky signs and weirdness and keep people believing the lie rather than embracing the truth. So, yes, there's a sense where evil lying signs and wonders can happen, but the reason I say he's here on good solid ground is because in Matthew, you'll remember there's that passage in 12 that Jesus talks about that heinous, unforgivable sin. A sin that many Christians over the years, many people of faith have struggled with. Have I committed the unpardonable sin because of something I've done here and there? And, you know, early on in my own Christian life, I'd wondered about that very thing for myself. But what it says there is that they, they... it's a judgment from Jesus upon the religious leaders of that day because they were attributing the work that God was doing through Jesus to Satan. They knew the work that Jesus was doing could only be done by God, and yet they attributed the work that could only be done by God to Satan. And so Jesus says that you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because you have said this work that can only be done by the Spirit of God was actually done by the work of the enemy. But Nicodemus here does not fall into that same trap that his fellow Pharisees seem to have fallen into. In fact, here he says, no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So even though the Pharisees are condemned in another part of the Gospels, here Nicodemus comes out of that particular scathing um, Unscathed, He is himself a believer, at least in the works that God is doing. He is not in the place of having committed that unforgivable sin. And so if you think, well, maybe I've committed this sin. Well, unless you were there when Jesus was doing his miraculous works and you saw the works he was doing and you knew they came from God and yet you attributed them to Satan, you're safe. (laughs) You're okay. Don't worry about that. And in fact, the very thing that gave me so much comfort many years ago was the fact that somebody pointed out that I am worried about that particular sin and therefore I'm probably okay. In fact, I'm certain I can be okay because none of the people who committed that particular sin at that time could have cared less. But if we have concern about our sin, that's a good thing. That's something that we should always be mindful of doing. But that's a little side tangent there. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one 
is born again. I know not every single person who's a Christian has had the experience of living a life where you were dead in your trespasses and sins and fully aware of it. And then at a point in life, something changed. And you were now not the same person you were before. Physically, you might have the same DNA structures within your body that you had previously. But there's something so different that you are now fundamentally not the same person that you previously were before. I get it. Some people, you know, were saved at such a young age that they don't have that. Or some people can only remember walking with the Lord through their whole lives. I love that. That's my favorite testimony to hear, to be perfectly honest. But when I hear this and I read these words now, I have a particular advantage that Nicodemus didn't. In fact, let's be honest, nobody hearing the words of Jesus, whether it was the disciples or some people standing around eavesdropping, understood what Jesus was getting at here because the Holy Spirit had not yet come yet. Right? It's at the very end of the Gospel of John where Jesus breathes and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then later on, even after the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and then they are gifted with the gifts that they will have as it were baptized into the body of Christ. And then they go out from there and the church is established. Here at this point, nobody has had this experience yet. So from our perspective, it's understandable to read these words and to get, well, why he doesn't understand what it is he's getting at. But Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. Jesus says later on, we're going to get there in verse 10, how are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now, why would Jesus say that? If it's true that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon anyone. And at this particular point, being born again was not a concept anybody was familiar with or anybody was expecting, anybody was looking for the Messiah to be teaching. Why does Jesus hold him accountable for this? Well, the answer is simple. It's in the Old Testament. And it's not hidden in a corner of the Old Testament. There are many passages in the Old Testament that lead us to understand that this is the very thing that we should be expecting. Let's look at some of them. I would love to look at all of them, and maybe someday we'll have the time where we can do that. But let's look at a few of them right now, beginning with Ezekiel. Now, you might say, Ezekiel, gosh, I haven't done my devotions in Ezekiel in a decade. (laughs) We're not often in Ezekiel. Well, that might be true for you, but it wasn't true for Nicodemus or the people in his day. It's a big, major prophet. It was one of the places that was regularly quoted and regularly looked at, probably nearly as much as a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Ezekiel is a fundamental, is a foundational book for the Jews of that day and age. And so for him to say what he said about being born again and to look back and see that the concept that he's getting at comes from this passage in the Old Testament helps us see that Nicodemus should have been tracking with him. Verse 
22. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now it goes on from there. But this language is very clear and very similar to this concept of being born again. He's saying you're going to be washed from your uncleanliness. He says that you're going to be removed from all the things that defile you. He says that you're going to have this heart within you that is stone removed and a new heart put within you. He says that he's going to have the Spirit of God come within you and cause you to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. This passage here in Ezekiel is teaching that there is something fundamentally wrong with the nation of Israel and with these people that he's writing to and that for a change to happen and create something that is good and righteous and just and true, God has to invade and work a miracle. This is what we find all over the Old Testament. Let's look at a couple other passages. Ezekiel chapter 11. We'll stay in the same book for a minute. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. Verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered I will give you the land of Israel, and when they come there, they will remove from all its detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. They will walk in my statutes, they will keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I shall be their God. If you have been listening to me for any length of time as a preacher, those words that we ended with there, you should know well. I will be, or they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is covenantal language at its core. In fact, if you want a definition, what do the covenants mean? What is covenantalism? This is it. 
We will be God's people and he will be our God. When we find this new covenant language given to us all over scripture, this is the same kind of sentiment we find. In fact, being born again is new covenant language. That's what we're looking at right here. He's going to cause us to be born again. He's going to be our God and we will be his people. Because previously, under the old covenant, this was not the way of functioning. This was not the way where I am a new person and therefore I am yours and you are mine. In fact, Jeremiah chapter, what do we want to look at? 38, 36, how about that? Jeremiah, no, let's look at 31 first. Jeremiah 31. There's so many. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least To the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Here we see, again, God declaring, I will be their God and they will be my people. Here, rather than the language of washing, removing of detestable things, taking out a heart of stone, the spirit coming within us. Instead, here we see God taking the law and putting it on our hearts and us having such an understanding of that that we no longer are needing to be taught one another, hey, know the Lord, because the Lord is the one who does the coming into us, introducing himself, as it were, to us, causing us to be born again and creating and establishing and sustaining that relationship that he makes with us. Like an old birth will always make me a Mathers. There's no getting around it. I'm always going to be a Mathers, right? Because I was born to my parents, Harry and Dixie Mathers. Therefore, I will always be Patrick Mathers. I can change my name, right? I can change my name even legally and have a driver's license that says Hootenanny Bill or something. I don't know. I can do whatever I want. But the reality is that those words don't define who I am. My parents defined a lot of who I am. See my dad in the way I walk, the way I talk, the way I say things. I watch a video of myself and I see certain mannerisms that I have from both of my parents that I didn't you know, learn or study. I'll do it this way. Okay. No, nothing like that. It's just I, I, I'm their son. I don't have anybody who needs to teach me those things. They're ingrained within me. When we are born again and we are given new spiritual life, we are given completely new 
proclivities, new instincts, new desires, new affections, new hopes, new understanding, new intellect, new everything. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. When we are born again, we are a new individual from the inside out. And therefore, what I was before, I am now not. So while I'm still Mathers outwardly looking, I have new different understandings and beliefs and heart and desires and passions. Now, because I am God's child and I've been born again by the Spirit of God, I have this desire to follow his word written on my heart. And it isn't just on my conscience like the image of God. It isn't just a guilty, not guilty kind of thing, a judgment kind of a feeling that I have within myself. But instead, now it's a vibrant, new, living relationship because I am not just now a child of death, but I am a child who has now been born anew. I have life. I have a family. I've been adopted into God's kingdom and God's holiness, God's righteousness, all that he is as my father, I am now that too. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not doing some little gods kind of thing. But God has taken me from where I was, a child of wrath who deserved his punishment and deserved his judgment And has caused me to become born again so that John can say with the audacity that he musters there in John, 1 John chapter 3, that we don't know what we're going to be like when we see him. But we know that when we see him, we're going to be like him even as he is. And everyone who has that hope within him purifies himself even as he is pure. So beloved, the new hope, the new relationship, the new life we have because of the new birth is such a quality and such a caliber that we're going to be as much as we can possibly be like incarnate deity one day when we're glorified. I don't have any idea what that means or what that looks like, but doggone, I can't wait for that day. And I think about Jesus and I hear him say words like this and it makes me look back in scripture and it makes me fall in love with him more as I hear about Jesus because gosh, I just want to be like him. I want to know him more and I want to be like him. Like Paul says there in Philippians, as much as possible, I want to attain the resurrection of the dead. And it isn't just to have eternal life. You know what? That's fine and good. But that's not where my hope is. My hope is I get to be with Jesus. I get to be with my family forever. I get to be with my God. He is my God and I am his people. I get to be with him and dwell with him. And what I experience now at a distance, spiritually through my relationship with the Lord and my fellowship with fellow believers is good and wonderful, but oh, it's just a little trickly taste of glory divine that is ours one day. It's just a wedding of our appetite for that day where we get to be beholding the face of God We fall down before him, casting down our crowns, and there before him. And it's all because of this new birth. And we can look all over over the Old Testament and find these illusions, these directions, these glimmers, these shinings forth. 
pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the great hope that the writer to the Hebrews keeps giving to those Hebrew believers as they're struggling with their own uh, persecution and how to continue to endure that persecution. He keeps telling them there's nothing greater to go to. If you go back, you are abandoning your new birth. You are abandoning your covenant relationship. You're abandoning that which God has done for you as if you could even to do that. The great hope is that the new birth, that which causes us to be born again, is that which gives us that access to the kingdom of God, but it also gives us all of the stamina we need in order to get there too. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's the one who began the new work in us. God is the one who has done this, not we ourselves. And part of Nicodemus's consternation in trying to wrap his head around what in the world this means is because he was trying to take the regular physical birth and say, well, okay, well, how does that happen a second time? And of course, Jesus's point is something much greater and grander than that, is that no, it isn't about physical new birth. It's you need to be spiritually born again. Otherwise, you have no hope of seeing this kingdom of God that God so has richly prepared for those who are his. Well, we should probably stop there. I was not sure we'd get all the way through that passage, but um, this is a good place for us to stop here tonight. Lord, we love you and we know that without this new birth, Lord, we have no, 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 no hope. But Lord, you've given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, at least for those who love you and are the called according to your purposes, Lord. And all this comes from this new birth because it isn't just a birthing of something new, but it's an entire new relationship and it's a new experience. It's new life, Lord. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would live in light of this truth. And we would never fall into that trap of assuming the gospel, assuming those things about you that you have done for us, not we ourselves. And that we would be able to rest in this new birth that we have from you because you are good and you are faithful And you will accomplish everything that you set out to do in our lives, Lord. Thank you, and in your name we pray. Amen.